Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. It's an annual tradition, the Climate Year in Review. I love doing these episodes. A chance to reflect on the year, talk about the podcast, and also bring on some guests to have these great conversations with me. I was very fortunate to host three accomplished adapters, Anita Van Breda of World Wildlife Fund, Emily Wosley of WSP, and Dr. Meredith Wiggins of Historic England. I'm going to let them talk more about who they are and what they do in our main interview, but let's just say they are some amazing people doing some amazing work. I highly encourage you to check out my show notes to learn more about what they do. Okay, so upcoming episodes. This is my last episode of 2019, and I'll be taking a little bit of a break from my normal schedule, but starting in early January, I have a fantastic episode on extreme heat with Dr. Lad Keith at the University of Arizona. I got to record that conversation in person on campus, and I'm looking forward to sharing it since it's a topic I should have covered long ago. Also in the works is an episode with one of my favorite guests, Dr. Jesse Keenan of Harvard University. We talk about a newsletter he edited for the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and how the Federal Reserve is getting into the adaptation space. 2020 is going to be a great year. So before we jump into the year in review episode, I want to mention the work I'm doing with Simpatico Studios. I mentioned this in the last episode, and going forward, you're going to hear me talk about this a lot more. I'm going to be hosting live talk shows on Simpatico TV. Simpatico Studios is a new software television company that produces live stream talk shows about important business and social problems, policies, and innovations. I will be anchoring, appropriately, the Climate Adaptation Channel, where I will interview academics, policymakers, journalists, researchers, and climate adaptation professionals just like yourself. Simpatico is an invite-only professional network, and I'd like to personally extend an invite to all adapters interested in joining a community of peers. Our television shows will be live streamed, meaning you can interact directly with me, my guest, and other community members in the chat space during our interviews. Also, like to invite adapters to join me as a guest on my upcoming pilot episodes. If you have a specific problem, policy, best practice, product, or program that you'd like to highlight to your peers, we are ready for your debut on Simpatico. Videos from all our episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own website and social channels like YouTube. In the show notes, you'll find a link to request an invite to Simpatico. Yes, I know this seems like something very new and different. Check out the link to learn more. It's something I'm doing in parallel with the podcast, but it'll be an opportunity to have a lot more conversations than I do here on the pod. And again, we're in the process of recording pilot episodes. Maybe you and I can have that next conversation. Get in early. We are going to have a lot more interviews there. So check out the link in my show notes to learn more. I hope to hear from you. Okay, let's jump into the year in review episode. Hey, actors. I have an exciting episode, and this time I truly mean it. Joining me is Emily Wosley, Senior Project Director at the consulting firm WSP. I also have Anita Van Breda, Senior Director of Environment and Disaster Management at the World Wildlife Fund. And I'm not done yet. Dr. Meredith Wiggins, who works at Historic England and is currently on a sabbatical doing a AAAS fellowship in the United States. Ooh, there's a lot of you. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank you. Hi, Doug. Thanks, Doug. 
Listen to all those voices. All right. So my listeners, we have a lot of juggling to do and we're going to make this work, but I'm very excited to have you guys all on. You all are just leading voices in the adaptation space. Some of you I know better than others. I know Emily well. I know Anita well, but Meredith, this is the first time I'm actually talking to Meredith. So let's just jump into this, this episode. And what I want to do is just to give people, and I think partly so the listeners can keep track of who's talking and they'll figure this out pretty quickly, but let's just go around and just introduce yourself and talk about the work that you and sort of work you've been doing and, and the adaptation work. And so let's start with you, Meredith. I'm originally from Miami, but for the last 15 years or so, I've uh, lived and worked in the UK. I'm an anthropologist, archaeologist by training. And what I have been doing for the last five years or so is working on risk and resilience of the historic environment in the UK working for Historic England, who advised the UK government on culture um, and heritage in the UK. And what that means is that we consider, I'm on sabbatical at the moment, working for the US government, but in terms of my work for Historic England, we kind of see the environment as a managed landscape. And so you can't really divorce the past from the present, from the future. Um, so I've been working on research projects to design solutions to the problems that we're seeing and think about how we can um, better increase resilience. I think I hear a little bit of an English accent there, too. It's 15 years, so it's got to do something, right? right. <laughs> That's so cool, actually. Next up is Emily. Emily, could you tell a little bit about yourself? And I know you've got some new information, new history, what you're doing. Sure. Thanks, Doug. Excited to be on this podcast and panel. And I actually was born and raised in England. So even though I don't have an accent, <laughs> it is, it's secretly in me. It comes out when I'm around other people. British folks. But so as Doug mentioned, I'm uh, Emily Wasley, and I am an expert in climate risk adaptation and resilience. I take kind of an all hazards resilience approach to my work, given that climate change exacerbates other stressors. So have been working in this space for about 15 years, working with governments, companies, different communities and people to really enhance their resilience, uh, whether it's related to built infrastructure natural infrastructure and social infrastructure. And Doug, we can go into social infrastructure if you'd like, but that's a big passion of mine. Doug mentioned I just started at WSP, which is an international engineering firm. I'm based in San Francisco and just started about a month ago. So I'm still relatively new, but WSP actually stands for Williams Sale Partnership. It was a company founded in 1885. So it's been around for a long time, but the work that I do is really focused heavily on helping corporations better understand the risks and the opportunities associated with transitioning to a low-carbon economy, as well as the physical um, implications of climate change. So that has been keeping me busy for a long time recently, but also prior to WSP, I was the Director of Corporate Sustainability and Climate Resilience at the Cadmus Group. And where I know Doug is uh, during my time at the U.S. Global Change Research Program, when I lived in D.C. for 10 years, I worked as the Adaptation Science and Informing Decisions Lead there. So I was working with federal agencies in the climate science community, helping to better kind of translate the science into what federal agencies needed for adaptation planning. I led some efforts with FEMA and the White House on climate resilience exercises and then supported the adaptation chapter of the National Climate Assessment. So happy to be on the panel. Awesome. And congrats on the new job. Uh, last but not least is Anita Van Breda. Anita, what do you do? Thanks, Doug. I'm not actually sure what I do every day. It's something different, but I um, have been with World Wildlife Fund WWF since 2002. My background is actually in biology and natural resource management. Before I moved to Washington, D.C. to join WWF, I was working in the South Pacific 
And before that, I was working in the Caribbean. So I spent most of my professional career working internationally, mostly on islands where I was warm and I didn't have to wear shoes and I could go snorkeling and diving on a regular basis. So how I ended up in Washington, D.C., I don't really know. But it's been good because I came here to join our marine program and then a few years into that shifted into the work that I do now. I started our environment and disaster management program. And, and what we try to do is is look at how the environment and managing the environment can help reduce risk to disasters and also help recovery be more resilient and climate informed for the future. And so I, a number of years ago, I joined the climate change adaptation team here at WWF led by Sean Martin and have been trying hard all these years to learn more about adaptation and adaptation planning. And uh, through that work with Sean, got to meet Doug and learn about podcasting and have benefited from uh, Doug's experience and expertise in this space to do some of the podcasts for my program on using natural and nature-based methods for flood management. So thank you, Doug, for including me in this group, and I'm uh, excited to have this conversation. Well, yes, and people probably recognize your voice because we did that three-episode arc on flooding. So That's right. <laughs> That's right. The world-famous three-episode flooding arc. Yep. All right, guys, let's just jump into this. This is the end of the year episode. It's been a big year for America Daps, and we're going to start. I'm going to start you off with some questions here. I know we, I have, you know, we're going to talk about the top climate stories of the year, but first off, just something a little bit more mundane, and I think this is useful information and it, it's helpful for me too. And so I'm going to just go around, and if you other, if you guys have, again, if you have questions you want to ask each other in response, let's let's have a conversation here, but. I want to talk about some listener habits. And so let's just start off. I'm going to go with this right back with you, Anita. How do you listen to the podcast? You listen to America Daps, but literally, how do you listen to it? And, you know, what kind of app and where do you listen to it typically? Yeah, well, Doug already knows the answer to this. I always listen to America Daps when I'm working out at the gym. That is what keeps me going around the circuit. And a lot of times I find myself answering the questions that are being discussed uh, on the episode or making notes to myself to go back and tell Doug, I really like this part or I didn't like that part at all. You need to work on that. That's what I do is is listen to American Adapts and other podcasts while I'm at the gym. And uh, that keeps me both healthy and informed. And are you just using the iPhone uh, app? I do. Yep. Anita and Sean at WDF, I don't know what they put in the water there, but they feel like they can be as blunt and honest as <laughs> they, they want. <laughs> it's the tough love program, Doug. You know, it's all tough love. Indeed. Okay, let's jump to Emily. And what app do you use and how do you – and you've told me this once before, but I want to I share it again in this episode. Sure. So I use the America Dep app on my iPhone, and I actually listen to your podcast and others – when I'm running around Lake Merritt. So I live in Oakland. I work in San Francisco. But I can remember listening to several episodes right after the election. And I it would just get all of my energies pumping. And I would laugh. I would make comments. And I'm sure people that were around me kind of thought I was a little <laughs> bit awesome. nutty. But it just it keeps me going. And it makes the time pass. And I do love running. But yeah, it's a it's an entertaining podcast to listen to while I'm exercising. Oh my goodness! Two out of three of you are getting fit listening to America Daps. So Meredith, <laughs> <I'm> so <resilient. laughs> Meredith, what's your story? Okay, so I 
I listened to on my previous phone. I had the America Adapts app on this current phone, which is a new a new phone. I um, listened to all my podcasts through Podcast Addict. Yep, it's an it's an Android. um, And previous to this, when I lived in England, I had about an hour's commute on a train. And it was the perfect time to sit and listen to podcasts because I'd be able to make notes. And I find with listening to America Adapts, I'm constantly stopping, rewinding and making notes about things. And so that was perfect for me. However, it, and you're going to love this. Um, now that I live in D.C., I do, I do what everyone does. I work out of it. So I will usually go down. The office that I'm in has a basement gym and I will go down and cycle for half an hour and listen to uh, the podcast. So, Yeah. It's problematic because then I need to go back and write things down. Um, but, you know, I just get a little bit more time listening to stuff. Awesome. I should partner with like some fitness mag or something. <laughs> <laughs> this app, this, this podcast. Yeah. Um, but on, so your original viewing, I mean, listening habits, that, that's just obviously music to my ears. You're sitting, it's someone's in England and uh, on the train and listening to America adapts. That's, that's really, that's awesome there are thought. There's quite a few of us who listen to, to America adapts because the, our problems are universal, right? It's not just America. And you've also done a couple of, you know, international, really international programs, haven't you? So it appeals to everybody. Well, Doug, maybe you should think about changing the name someday. <laughs> Has that ever come up? Oh, yeah. Sean, the world adapts or earth adapts, which are all kind of <laughs> lame. I get it, but they're kind of, they're not very. There's no alliteration there. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> we'll work on it. Well, on that note, I'm going to go right back through with you guys. And again, this is about listener habits. And I'm also trying, I have my own agenda here, inspiring my listeners to do certain things. I'm assuming you share the podcast maybe with friends, family, and colleagues. Is this a common occurrence? Like, who do you feel more, most comfortable sharing it with? Is it just people you think are going to care about adaptation? Maybe, uh, Meredith, how, do you, how do you share it? And you've actually, you, you shared with me how you shared it recently. Yeah. So mostly I'd say I don't know any people in my direct family that listen to podcasts. It's mm. not a, they're not into that. So, with my family, I would probably mention something that was relevant, but I wouldn't say, hey, listen to this podcast, because it would never happen. However, I share widely things that are super interesting about what America Adapts is t- thinking or talking about or sharing where, when it comes to Twitter, when it comes to my own personal um, work contacts. And yeah, I mean, if you're referring to the I was at a I was invited to speak at a conference two weeks ago about a paper I wrote last year. I actually wrote it at the end of 2017, but the paper was completely inspired by the um, first uh, episode you did with Jesse Keenan because the whole episode was about climate gentrification. It was about Miami, which is where I'm from to some extent. And uh, and I listened to the podcast and was really interested in where the gaps were in, in where the thinking was about culture and cultural heritage and how people are being, they're losing their homes, their livelihoods, but also their culture, you know, as the waters are rising. And that includes me because I'm a Miamian. So I wrote this paper about climate gentrification and how it's affecting cultural heritage because I didn't see anyone else writing it. And that's directly due to you. So thank you. Oh, boy, that is awesome. Well, thank you. And that's awesome. Emily. So um, I'll give a a quick plug, Doug, to you. So what I love about the podcast, America Daps, is that it feels like a family of folks that I know really well and folks that I haven't met yet but want to know. And so because of that, 
I do share it with my family. Um, I say, <laughs> hey, I know Maggie. Why don't you listen to this podcast? Or, hey, Judge Hill's on this one. She speaks about climate change and national security, and it's amazing. And my family gets a big kick out of how excited I get about America Depths. But I also share it through social media. I'm not great with social media, but I do use Facebook, um, Instagram. And so I share it widely on Facebook. And then my new work colleagues are really interested in it. We were actually just on a phone call this morning. I mentioned it and they're interested in doing a uh, sponsored panel. So it's something. And I have also been sharing it with my niece and nephew and when I get them in the car and they're only five and eight, but um, I get them listening and yeah, no, but they're, they're fascinated. And so that that'll come up later when I talk about one of the top stories, but uh, um, yeah, I spread it far and wide. They're probably thinking, who's the guy who sounds like he's going through puberty. Um, (laughs) And, you know, a a plug to Rob Moore, it's someone who listens to it. He was a recent guest and he bought America Dapp's mugs for his entire staff. So that's something to consider, Emily, at WSP to kind of get it around. I know you had mugs, Doug. Wow. No, you got to order them yourself. You got (laughs) to Anyway. Oh, okay. And let me just qualify before we get to need it is that. If you're a new listener to America Daps, th- it typically isn't this self-serving. This is the end of the year <laughs> episode, and I just think this is kind of it's it's great for me. But I think hopefully it's useful listeners on. I'm trying to encourage you too. If you're like, oh wait a sec, I should share this. So Anita, how do you share it? I share it with friends and family, but I also at every public speaking opportunity that I have, which ranges from you know small groups in a little conference room. To, to larger platforms, uh, we always talk about how people can learn and, and teach themselves more about adaptation and about disasters. And so I always put a plug in for it there and share my experience with, with the podcast and how it's been helpful to me personally, as well as the program that I manage. And I have to say, Doug, honestly, I, I have noticed quite a few times when I mention it and I put the website up. I see people taking notes and a few people have come up to me afterwards and said, so what was that uh, oh, podcast again? And it does, it does resonate with people. And I think that, you know, yeah, we're helping you do a little self promotion here, but if people do look at the website and look at the, the resources that you have to support the episodes, you know, thinking about the podcast in the classroom service that you and your colleagues provide, I mean, it's, it's fun, it's entertaining, but there's also a serious, learning component there. Um, and so you got it all in one package, which is why we're all trying to support you and, and see this work go on and be successful. Well, thank you all so much. Those are awesome stories. And, you know, the notion like Meredith, you had, you showed me those slides and I think at what people when do presentations, a lot of times we all have sort of like that resource slide. It'd be like, Oh, here's this report or that report. And if, I would love to show up regularly as, as a resource that people are kind of sharing with other folks and not just America Daps. There are other climate podcasts and I'm unlike on this mission to get newsletters and all those people because they'll have conferences, events and webinars. It's like have a regular listing of climate podcasts and it's harder than you think to get people to kind of list those things. But thank you guys for what you're doing with that. Now let's move past <laughs> the ego stroking part of the show. And let's talk about top climate stories. This is what I did for the last two years for my end of the year episodes. And you guys each had some homework and then we're going to talk about, and I think I said top two or three, we'll probably have time to kind of go through like two. And in I just want you to share what you think. Look back at 2019, the climate change is, 
And this issue is only going to be bigger, right? And for the next 50, 100, 200 years. But it's playing out in ways in the media, and it's interesting to kind of look back and see what got traction and what sort of resonated with us. And so let's just jump right into it. Let's do – I didn't give you this kind of direction. I don't know if you prioritized in your head, like, well, this is number two and this is number one. But let's start off with number two, and I'm going to start with Emily. Emily. Thanks, Doug. Way to put me on the spot. But uh, okay, number two. So I did actually um, categorize them. Of course, I'm a little bit to type A, but I looked at a story that concerns me. I looked at a story that interests me and a story that gives me hope. And so number two is what interests me. And it was actually more recently in November 2019, a headline that psychologists from 40 countries pledged to use their jobs to address climate change. As you know, in at the National Adaptation Forum in April, we led a session on transformation resilience, personal resilience, and the adaptive mind. So I led that with Susie Moser, and we had about 70 attendees, and, and it was really focused on the impacts that us as climate change professionals, as climate adaptation professionals, are having in this space of we can't unknow what we know and we know what's coming. We know we have been experiencing um, extreme weather events, either directly or indirectly. We plan scenarios. I have written scenarios that I thought would never come true and they have already. There's a lot of anxiety in the climate space. There's a lot of anxiety when it comes to individuals or communities that have faced extreme weather events and impacts. It was very interesting to me that these psychologists are now incorporating climate change considerations into the work that they do and being more informed about the topic so that they can talk to their patients, talk to the individuals or the communities or groups that they're working with about the anxiety and really frame it in terms of how they can take action, how they can enhance their personal or community resilience. And there are a lot of tools that are out there. There are resources that are out there. They just may not be connected directly to climate change. So that was my number two story. Do you want to sneak your number three in real quick? I I kind of said two to three. So let's just get it in since you thought about it. Sure. My story number three that leaves me hopeful is the youth climate justice movement. And I wanted to talk a little bit about a Bay Area group, Youth versus Apocalypse, that has gotten some attention and movement in the Bay Area, but also nationwide. And it just gives me a lot of hope that the younger generations are really standing up and striking and really participating um, and making their voices heard. Awesome. Anita, so I don't know if you had three or two. What If you want to mention. I have three. Okay, so go ahead and do three and two, and then we'll, we'll wait till one to go around again. So number three for me was the, the manage retreat discussion and flooding issues because, you know, I think about flooding a lot. Um, And so just seeing that topic and that subject being discussed more and thought about more, uh, both in the popular media as well as in the scientific journals and discussion groups about that issue, which coincides with your 100 episode, I thought that was uh, interesting uh, for me for, for number three and Number two for me would be the the fires in California and the Amazon. And, you know, again, just sort of thinking about how much of that is related to climate and climate change and how much of that is related to other issues and how do we think about and discuss and eventually 
hopefully very soon, start to address the complexities around the interrelated elements of the, of the fire and how do we do collectively restoration for those habitats and those communities that is more forward thinking and better prepared for a different climate in the future. So those are my top three and two. Excellent. Okay, Meredith, what do you got? Are you going to do three or you got two? I think you maybe even had one. I have two. Okay, okay. I I guess the first thing that I wanted to, uh, to, to talk about was this World Bank blog that I saw that it was in October. And it was basically talking about these Bangladeshi farmers who had used and are using a 200-year-old practice, farming practice, to revive different crops in their like drought resistant and flood resistant crops in the areas in which they live in order to adapt to climate change. Um, and I kind of came across it totally randomly. And I think there was something about that day where I was just like really down and like, oh, we, I, we spend a lot of time thinking about climate change and it's all very depressing sometimes. And oh, poor me. And then I read this article about this practice and these people who had looked back into the traditions that had been practiced previously and how the landscape had changed over time and how they started thinking about how the management of the landscape had shifted water to places that it hadn't been. And now the rains are shifting water to places it hasn't been. And they changed their practices and now they're thriving. And I just loved that. I found that really inspiring. And it Every, at every possible moment, I, <laughs> I'd bring this up and start talking about these Bangladeshi farmers because I, um, I love the idea of, of learning from the past and then taking that forward into a more climate resilient future. The other news that I was going to uh, talk about is something else that I think is really inspiring, which is in October of 2019, there was a big event in Edinburgh in Scotland to launch the global climate heritage network and it was essentially bringing together local and city and state and provincial and regional governments indigenous people national arts groups culture and heritage groups and just lots of different people and organizations to talk about the ways in which what we know about our past can help us get to a more resilient future and and how we can protect and promote and, and learn from each other. And I found, again, that really inspiring. So I'm trying to find um, news articles that are, let's take uh, our most positive selves into 2020 and talk about what we can do to um, share more and do more. We got Meredith's both of hers. Those are awesome stories. My number two is the... Democratic presidential election, that the issue of climate change came up in ways that even four years ago would have been unheard of. And I thought that was very encouraging. And when you're in the climate space and you hear just like on the environmental news, there was a lot of criticism like, well, they didn't talk about it at this event or that event. Oh, my goodness. I mean, they had an entire forum on it and it keeps being brought up in a different context. And so in some ways, it's it's an amazing thing. And the other kind of flip side of the news there is that on the Republican side, there's no discussion. That's not a healthy thing. But uh, we should feel lucky that the Democrats are talking about as much as they are. And maybe you guys disagree. But I think that was a really big news item in, 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 in what's been what's happening. Doug, this is Emily. So that's a really good point. And I, I, what I loved about this year's town hall 
was that it didn't just speak to the climate mitigation, the GH, the greenhouse gas emission reduction component of climate change. It actually went into risks and physical implications and extreme weather events that traditionally, you know, the adaptation component of climate change tends to be left out or forgotten or even just misunderstood um, in presidential elections. So it was really, really encouraging to see the candidates better understanding what are the true risks and thinking about how we can adapt. I agree. All right, let's hear your number one. My number one. <laughs> uh, so the one story that truly worries me um, is this concept around oceans and ice. And so it was the IPCC special report on the ocean and cryosphere in a changing climate. So SROC came out in late September 2019. I am not an oceans expert whatsoever, but I have recently become a um, ocean enthusiast through scuba diving. And so Anita would love to chat with you about that at another time. But, you know, oceans cover more than 70% of our Earth's surface. Uh, they provide about 70 to 80 percent of our oxygen that we breathe. You know, they provide so many services to humans, to ecosystems, to species that, you know, the protection of the oceans hasn't gotten as much attention as I think kind of land protection has been getting. So Sylvia Earle, who's kind of a living, living legend of the seas, has said, even if you never have the chance to see or touch the ocean, the ocean touches you with every breath you take, every drop of water you drink, every bite you consume. Everyone everywhere is inextricably connected to and utterly dependent upon the existence of the sea. So I would love to see more focus on how we can protect the oceans from ocean acidification. It's warming at a rapid pace, it's really affecting our um, ecosystems, but it's also the overconsumption of or overfishing of different marine animals and, and fish in our seas. So that is. The IPCC report was pretty dire, and that was something that I thought should be my number one story. This is some great stuff, great stories. Anita? My number one story is something that I know was difficult and caused a lot, a lot of controversy, but it was the new and improved America Adapts logo. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. No, that's it. Oh, that, that's your number one story of the year. All That's right. My number one story of the year. I got ch to check Google News, see how much that popped up. <laughs> Meredith, I didn't maybe frame this the right way. You kind of you did your two. I don't know if there was any other additional story you want to share. I, I would I, I would just share mine. But you have anything else? No, but I mean, I really liked what Emily was saying and just wanted to echo. I mean, we could go off on that. We can have a whole other complete discussion just about ecosystem services, blue carbon, you know, natural capital. I feel like this is a this is an issue which I'm hoping to address in my new thinking here in D.C. But I think that I'm hoping that 2020 is going to be the year where we start valuing our the natural services and the natural environment in ways in the same way that we, let's say, value um, the oil in the ground. You know, we need to start thinking about these things as important as or more important as they are than than the things that we currently value. So that involves a mindset which is going to need to radically shift and I really hope is shifting. And that's all that I wanted to say. Excellent. And, and I'm going to have a, ask you guys about the year ahead and maybe some topics that I can cover and can maybe bring that up again then. My number one, and it, it, it's kind of vague, but to me, you know, we in this climate orbit, we follow the, the news much more closely. And I feel like 
adaptation in some ways rose up and got out of the shadow of the mitigation side of it. And Emily alluded to some of this, but you know, you're just hearing with climate impacts, what's happening. And then it's like, well, that we've been talking about for years. Well, okay. So what's the next part of that conversation? How do we adapt to these impacts? And I felt like 2019 really was a, a breakthrough year. That said, we are just scratching the surface. The public has no clue what adaptation is, but I think, you know, a lot of players are kind of coming into the space and I think it, it, it's pretty exciting. And there's just going to be, I think, a lot of people wanting to know more and how to get into this space. So that to me was a big thing that happened in 2019. Well, maybe part of what can happen then is some things that you've alluded to in past episodes, Doug, with some of your guests is the fact that people and ecosystems and wildlife are always adapting, right? And it depends on how we look at it and how we define it and and what credit we give to those processes. It's not necessarily the case, I don't think, that adaptation is is a new thing, uh, although we have to ramp it up, obviously, and, and consider it in a new light. But I think there's different perspectives of how old or how new or how ongoing uh, the the issue of adaptation is. Good point. I'm going to throw out an uh, unexpected question, and you could say I don't want to answer this, and I think I get a <laughs> reputation of being too positive, too inspirational, and let's create some tension here. What was the most disappointing adaptation development in the past year? Darn it, we need some drama here, okay? Can you do this on the fly? So this past year, the Global Adaptation commission released a report but that commission itself got a lot of attention and i've started to talk about this a little bit and i kind of felt it was a huge missed opportunity they had some big names had bill gates and you think of his pockets and i watched the promotion of the report you know they had a big event and it was just this wonky insidery kind of thing and adaptation really needs to come out in a big way and they need to get a bit more innovative and creative in how they're going to communicate it. And it was just, let's just talk to the same wonky bureaucratic people in DC or New York, whatever that we normally talk to. And I was actually quite disappointed in that. And it's an important initiative and I think it remains to be seen what they do, but yeah, I think that was a missed opportunity. I I could say from my view of the world over the last year it's it's not so much an adaptation disappointment it's a, maybe a climate overall disappointment or not even disappointment a little bit of a concern i i work with a lot of humanitarian agencies on uh, disasters and disaster management and many more of them now are acknowledging climate and climate change and the need to adapt and the need to better understand that context and to include it in their work which is great and I support it completely. But what I have seen, and I've been trying to correct in my own little way, is the notion, the mistaken notion, I think, that if agencies like that are addressing climate, then they're taking care of the environment or their responsibilities around the environment. And so they don't necessarily see the difference or the similarities. And that gives me a little bit of concern. Because we need to understand and and do both in our work, in my view. Emily or Meredith, do you have any observations? Sure, this is Emily. I think just like any other systemic issue these days, I feel as though we've had so many extreme weather events that in the news, when they're highlighted, they get very quickly forgotten. And I can remember distinctly when Katrina happened in 2004, it was a 
major event and it was thought about and considered for many years. And I know that we've been looking at case studies as a result of that extreme weather event, but also, you know, with Hurricane Sandy, there's been a lot of movement and progress in those spaces. But I do get concerned that, you know, people were just I mean, it's it's happening more frequently, which, you know, we we kind of understood that that was going to happen with climate change. But with the the fact that they're happening more frequently, it's becoming I don't want to say the new normal because it's not normal, but it's becoming more frequent. And I just hope that folks don't kind of put their heads in the sand and just say, oh, this will continue happening. So it's not really much we can do. The other opportunity missed or I guess confusion that could be going on right now is the comparison between adaptation, climate adaptation and resilience. And I think there is a significant opportunity missed in the understanding of what adaptation means compared to resilience and how it can be framed in the context of resilience. But when when folks are using the term resilience, a lot of times they mean disaster response, disaster recovery, instead of really truly thinking about the systemic issues about preparing, being proactive, and adapting to these changes to help us thrive. Good point. I just had my interview with Alice Hill uh, last week, and we had that discussion mm-hmm. about Savannah because she went all in on resilience in her book. So it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Meredith, did you have you, you don't if you don't have anything that's fine, but did you have anything you wanted to say? Kind of. I think the story or, or concept that I was trying to think of earlier was actually a bit more about adaptation versus mitigation and specifically thinking about buildings. And recently in the UK, I heard some news from colleagues back there that that there's been a, a report basically saying that we need to be, build all these NZEB near um, zero energy buildings to be able to cut down on the amount of 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 energy that's being lost because something like 60% of the energy that's that the carbon's being emitted is through um, households basically heating their houses. And previous to coming to DC, I'd been working on a study looking at carbon in traditional buildings. And I feel like it's a total missed opportunity to focus on knocking down, you know, 5.1 million buildings in the UK emitting all that carbon to knock them down and then build those near zero energy buildings when those buildings are far more adaptable in many cases they can adapt to changing conditions they can get wet and dry out um, and i know that a lot of buildings in along the coast in the us perhaps are you know the lapboard buildings are not necessarily as able to flood and recover as stone traditional stone buildings are in other places in the world but for this for this short-sightedness and not thinking about the carbon emissions inherent when you, um, let's say, import a bunch of steel from China or whatever, however you want to, to build your NZ building, that big hit of carbon when you build a building and and then use it is going to be far less if you just use what you've got and and those buildings are adaptable. So I, I kind of was thinking about it as as an adaptation story, but it's kind of a mitigation story. No, that's good. Frustration yeah. story in my I, mind. I had no idea. Interesting. I'm going to pivot a little bit here, guys. So we, we just went dark. We went really dark. So let's bring it back around. I want to talk about the adaptation universe, and this is something I bring up on the podcast quite a bit. I know Emily well. I know Anita well. And I think you both kind of inhabit different areas of the adaptation universe. Meredith, and I'm looking for 
interested in your answer to this, but first off, do you feel like you're part of a broader adaptation community and why and why not? And uh, Emily, maybe we could start with you and what I'm kind of getting at, you know, there's an association and there, there's a group of people in certain orbits that we feel like we know each other a lot, but then the reality of the adaptation community is much larger. And I just, I think we have three very different voices here and I, I want your opinions on what you feel is the adaptation community. And yeah, Emily, let's just start off with you. Sure. I definitely feel like I'm part of the adaptation community and I have been in, I think just given the work that I've been doing, my passion for adaptation, um, the role that I play now on the board of directors for the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, ASAP, you know, I have some of my best friends are in the adaptation space because we can understand what we're, we're working on. We can understand why we're so passionate about it, but there's so many other people that are in the adaptation space or that work in a space that could be viewed as adaptation or connected to adaptation that I don't know yet and that I would love to connect with. And so that I think is a way that I can do that is by listening to your podcast, but also by attending different conferences that aren't speaking to the adaptation field. So we're not kind of preaching to the choir, but we're, we're connecting and we're getting out into other fields that may touch upon adaptation, but may not be as connected. So I am always looking to gather more adaptation family friends. So um, yeah, it's, it's a it's a happy space for me. Honestly, it's it rejuvenates me um, whenever I spend time with people that are in the adaptation space. I feel like I'm at home. I do. And I know you've you've commented on this before, but um, there's several of us ladies in the adaptation space that get together at the, after the National Adaptation Forum just to debrief and to disconnect and reconnect with each other. And it's so refreshing and it's so what I need every year. And I'm sad to say that it only happens once a year, but it's, I love every part of it. It's so exclusionary. It's like the cool kids <laughs> getting together and there's just no room for anyone else. No. no. <laughs> That's okay. So I don't want to come. Now that I'm in DC. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You got to join ASAP. That was easy. That was really easy. So. <laughs> Anita, I'm going to go with Anita first, um, Meredith. But uh, Anita, and I just preface this with, you know, I've worked with you quite a bit. But and, and could you elaborate on that? You went to the National Adaptation Forum, but you typically you aren't necessarily part of that, like say the ASAP crowd. And when you're at, do, you're doing a lot more international things than domestic. When you go around with those people, do you feel like the meetings you attend to and those groups? Do you feel like they all think they're adaptation people, or not at all? No, I would say less so in the sense that my adaptation community is is a small team here in the DOWF office that I'm a part of, and it and it's very small. And throughout the DOWF network, there's a larger group of people who are consider themselves to be in the DOWF adaptation team, but we don't see each other very often as as a group. And I don't necessarily go to the events like the the National Adaptation Forum that this year was the first one I went to. I quite enjoyed it and I learned a lot, but I go to other types of events and conferences and there will often be other adaptation or disaster risk reduction people there, a handful maybe. So it's not necessarily the the world that I'm from or, or the circles that I move in. I kind of dance around the edges a little bit and and. One of the questions that I've had and would love to know what you, Doug, and Emily and Meredith think about, you know, the future of the field. And is it something that should be more standardized and have um, 
certification or, or, or a professional norms behind it, or is adaptation something that everyone in every sector needs to learn about and do, or, or do you do both? I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Great question. I want to, I hear Meredith's answers first, but I'll, let me prompt something with that afterwards. But Meredith, and I know you're in the States right now, but I'd be very curious too, when you, you, you were working in at historic England, what's the adaptation community like over there? Do you feel like you're really isolated or is it much more integrated when you're working in the UK? Um, what, what's the scene like? Yeah, so it's pretty, um, I'm, I feel pretty, pretty lucky. It's pretty, um, integrated over there. In terms of, in general, there's, we take a holistic view of the landscape, right? The, the, the UK is a managed landscape. It's been managed by people, but for millennia. And so you can't really take the natural environment separately from, uh, from people and what they've been doing to it, you know, because you have to think about what people may have done to the past, uh, in the past. There are um, organizations like the Fit for the Future Network, which bring expertise on adaptation together with businesses to help people adapt. There are, I'm part of a, a, a wider group that's cross, across Wales, England, um, Scotland, Northern Ireland to bring cultural heritage professionals together but more more broadly i think that in terms of adaptation people are always looking for ways to do things better and so i do feel like there is a community of practice and um, knowledge sharing i also coming i've only been in bc for three months but i joined the federal adaptation resilience group at UCSG, uh, USGCRP. I'm getting used to all the acronyms in DC. And, and there seems to be a growing, well, growing because I'm learning more about it, a, a group of people here who are um, eager to learn and to work together on, on adaptation on every level um, here in the States as well, which is, it feels like home, which is nice. Awesome. Yeah. And that's very interesting to hear what's going on over there. Is there a UK based adaptation podcast? There isn't that I can find. That's why we need to listen to you, Doug. <laughs> That's shocking that there there isn't, you know, because the English language podcasts are very popular and you guys are doing such great work. I'm just I'm surprised. There, you know, what, I might be wrong. Someone can do some research and, and prove me wrong, please. Okay, someone's <laughs> some podcaster out there. So I'm doing it, <laughs> Doug. Yes, this is Emily. I just wanted to respond to Anita's question and comment about you know does there need to be a standard certification or training? And I think you know the folks that have been in the sustainability space for a long time, I think it would be wonderful if they were also trained on the co-benefits of adaptation strategies of why adaptation is so important to be. Um, complemented with the mitigation strategies that they're they're working on with their clients, with their organizations, with their communities. So I think there is a real opportunity for advancement in understanding what adaptation means, what are some examples, and how they can actually integrate it into the projects such as renewable energy initiatives or on-the-ground um, distribution diverse distribution of energy or water conservation methods that can serve both a way to reduce GHG emissions as well as adapt to climate change. Well, and I guess answering the, that question too, Anita, is I, ha I talk about the lack of universities in the U.S. who offer adaptation programs, and I still think they would probably be a really interesting area to kind of explore the idea, you know, certification, what really are all the background skills you need to be an adaptation professional? And I think like, you know, 
Emily, with ASAP, that they, they talk about it. And then there's ACO, which is another association. I think they do it, but it, do those skill sets really align with the diverse set of adaptation people? It's not clear. And I, I wonder if a university going through the process of developing a whole program, a graduate program, say even a PhD, all the different pieces that kind of go into that, you could learn from that. What really is practical? What really is, you know, is it just you're getting a PhD in adaptation and you're a landscape architect? Does it diversify like that? And I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation, but I think the universities could be leaders in this area. Mm-hmm. When you had um, Carolyn Kuski on, yeah. she, she was talking about certification and some of the programs that she mentioned. There was one at Penn, maybe, that was really um, looked, sounded really interesting. So I think that there are the, these things are starting, but they have to be, I feel like, rather than being a broad adaptation, it kind of, for the moment, needs to be sector specific. Because I feel like, in a way, we're firefighting. You know, we have to kind of figure out how to take the, all the people who are already experts at their field and give them the extra knowledge that they need to be able to do what they do better rather than, uh, well, I mean, at the same time, we should be training people from the bottom up as well. But, but yeah, it kind of feels like maybe a more piecemeal solution is the right one for now. And Doug, you mentioned, you mentioned ACO has their climate change professional certification. I just got certified in that. And as an ASAP board member, I wanted to make sure that I took that training so that I could understand what capacities were being highlighted and developed in terms of adaptation and climate risk management. It touches on it, and we're actually going to be working, ASAP and ACO are going to be working together to enhance that and identify areas of potential growth. But I think there's so many opportunities within universities to really weave in adaptation across sectors, just as Meredith mentioned. Oh, you're working with ACO, sort of like a West Side Story thing. Good. Collaboration. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, don't read into that, anyone. (laughs) Awesome conversation. I think we could have a full episode just r- talking around the, the, what's going on with adaptation. But I do want to kind of circle back around. This is the end of the year episode, and Anita, you alluded to it earlier too. I just ha- recently had my 100th episode. Um, it's just I think I'm I'm on 101 now. So just a few weeks ago, I had my 100th, and very exciting for me. 100 episodes. I look back, and it, it's been a, a, an awesome journey for myself. And what I wanted to do with you guys in part of this too is, you know, with listeners, if not everyone listens to every episode. And so what we're going to do here is you guys are going to rank one through a hundred, your ep- favorite episodes <laughs> and just kind of, we're, you know, I think I did that joke last year. No, actually, if you could mention, we're going to go around and just two episodes in the past year that kind of stood out for you to, if, if people didn't listen to these, it might be an opportunity for them to kind of go back and look. And Meredith, maybe we could start with you. I, I think most of you are pretty regular listeners. I get not everyone listens to every episode. I get that. But I think you guys listen to enough. Do you have a couple favorites from this past year? I love the Cli-Fi episode. I'm a sci-fi junkie. And so having someone talk about Paolo Bacigalupi's um, books was just like, I'm just going to sit here and drink this all in. But also what I loved about it was the idea that we need vivid imagery to help people understand what could happen and what is happening. And that, that communicating climate change and adaptation in different ways uh, to different people is really, really important. And I think that that's something I've always kind of known in the back of my mind. But I had never thought about climate fiction as a thing that could help people to talk more or help people to bridge gaps uh, in terms of 
the way that they think. And that I just found that really inspiring. I I could t- say that, my, that Keeping History Above Water and Marcy's one, because they're all heritage related, are my favorites. But I really liked Rob Moore's Flood, Build, Rebuild, Repeat, because I loved the idea and I and I constantly, when I'm talking, talk about the idea that climate change is affecting different people in different ways and it's exacerbating uh, inequality. And I loved when he said that it contributes to existing inequalities and the idea that people won't move when they're talking about managed retreat. And it's not just someone being able to hand them the money. It's a it's the power of place that comes into play there. And I think that that's really uh, interesting and powerful. And it's something that we have to we as adaptation professionals have to kind of make sure that we uh, acknowledge and try to understand more. I could go on and on. Like, <laughs> and I could go on and on listening to out. you. But we're, <laughs> <laughs> And I know Rob's probably listening to this. Hear that, Rob? Nice plug for your episode. Yeah, it was a great episode. It was a fun conversation. Anito, could you give me a couple? Yeah, I I wrote this down before I knew about this episode today and that Emily and Meredith were both connected with cultural heritage, but that, that was the number one for me, the keeping history above water. And I think for a number of reasons, I, I, it was very interesting. It was a lot of discussion about topics I am not that knowledgeable about. So I learned a lot and it was a, a longer episode and there were a lot of different voices. And I think that kept it, that kept it quite interesting for me. So that was, that was the number one. Number two for me was the uh, tribes and indigenous people and the false urgency of climate adaptation with Dr. Kyle White. I really enjoyed that as well. I had the good fortune to spend some time in the Chicago area and uh, had discussions with a few members of Native American communities and heard them talking about climate and adaptation in similar ways as Dr. White. And I thought that was also a very interesting discussion and I really appreciated his commentary about Native Americans always adapting and uh, their sense of time and time continuums, which is not something that maybe we think about or talk about enough in this space. Well, that, that was an amazing episode. And a lot of my episodes, I, I feel like I, I know the adaptation space really well, but without when I'm, I feel like we're really sharing something kind of new here in what was interesting with Kyle, and I don't get to do this that often, is I mean, I did with you, Anita, but I brainstormed with Kyle ahead of the actual recording, and we talked about some of my positions and then, you know, some of his positions, and I'm just like, good, I want some friction. And, you know, half of that episode is him just schooling me on why I was wrong, and that, that I think one of the reasons why it was so popular. So, yeah, I, that it was a really cool conversation. But he did it in such a kind, gentle way. Oh, but I cut out all the parts where he was just cursing at me and spitting up at me. And, right, right, uh, right. That son of a – no, it's a delight. Emily, you have a couple? I do. So, of course, I I went to the Mark Morano and Congressman Bob Inglis um, episodes were my top two because I just – I love hearing a variety of different perspectives, and I love hearing how – there are factors that motivate certain people <clears throat> to have uh, different views. And I know that your original podcast with Mark was in 2017, but you had the follow-up with Randy Olson, and he made so many good points about the need for the climate science community to really step up when it comes to clear communication, clear leadership, clear champions, 
because the climate skeptic community has done that really well. They have a lot of money that can go towards that perspective. But the climate science community, I think, really falls short when it comes to truly having a, a, a coordinated stance, uh, explaining the science in an easy way and providing hope for folks and action. And so I think Randy had some really, really good points. I look forward to reading his next book. What was I going to say to that? It's interesting that you didn't pick anyone related to adaptation. You're just so used to the space. That Mark Morano episode is an old one, but I re-released it. It was the first time I've ever re-released an episode because my listener base has just grown a lot since then. Even though that was my most popular episode and still is, I talked to a lot of people. I'm like, did you ever listen to this? And these were regular listeners, and they just hadn't gone back into the archive to listen to it. And so that's why I re-released that. And just it's a bonkers conversation. And Randy comes on like with a flamethrower. And it was just – I love that episode too. Yeah, it was just a fun conversation to have. And the number of times, Doug, that you said, well, I don't necessarily agree with you, but thank you. You know, you <laughs> were very diplomatic and I appreciated your diplomacy. But yeah, it was it was fascinating to me. I, I cut out probably a third of his nonsense. It was just a lot of <laughs> dropping. Like, I didn't want it to be a, a debate about climate change and he couldn't help himself sometimes. And that sometimes I would mm-hmm. just get rid of that and be like, well, this and I'm just like, oh, <laughs> Okay, Doug, I just want to ask you a quick question. I'm, I'm just wondering, as the host of America Daps, how do you decide what stories to cover and what not to cover? And then won't, what won't you talk about on America Daps? It's a good question. It's been asked to me like when I email, and it's pretty random. And part of it is I feel like I know the adaptation space relatively well. It's what I did with my career prior. And so there's certain areas that – I feel like it's my responsibility to cover, but a lot of times I might just read an article and say, oh, wait, that's really interesting. Maybe I'll have the uh, the author on, and this is a topic I haven't covered. Then people like you, Anita, you're, I have an advisory committee, and you guys will suggest and make recommendations, and it's sort of a filtering process. You know, Jesse Keenan, Meredith, you've mentioned uh, him, and Jesse has recommended multiple people that have come on, and I trust his judgment that this is really going to be an interesting f- person. I get it's kind of interesting too is that you get put on these media lists like I'm now podcaster you're now part of the media and so like PR people reach out to me and they'll want someone who wrote a book and they're on their behalf they're asking if they can come on the podcast and a lot of times it's just not a good fit or they're just not in the right space and so it's you know it's just sort of arbitrary like no I'm not going to do that I'm not interested in doing that and that's partly that's some of it there's some areas I guess to your question what I don't want to cover is that, you know what, if the topic truly bores me or I have a strong opinion that might be really negative, maybe I shouldn't go there. And so I kind of avoid those topics. And, you know, maybe that's not a responsible thing to do. Like I have an upcoming episode. I'm doing an interview with Lad Keith at University of Arizona on extreme heat. And extreme heat is the biggest killer of people. It swamps, what, like sea level rise and flooding. And I've never covered it. That That's pretty sloppy of me not to have covered extreme heat. It's random, and I'd like to be a bit more strategic about it, but at the same time, I, I think that's sort of like my MO, too, is my own personal interest and my own, I think, eclectic approach to it makes, makes it interesting to listeners, too. You know, I, I don't want to be too predictable. So, But now I'm dying to know what really, really bores you, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh. It's not All bores, right, but no, well, that. no, listen, uh, it's not bores. It's just like it's a subject that vexes me. And 
I've got Emily on, and I don't want to like offend her. So it's like. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> I think I know where you're going with this. Maybe and we you, should move on. You know, you alluded to it in that I was at that workshop you had, and it's the, the issue of climate trauma and the sort of psychology of climate grief and all that. And I just – I've thought about it a lot, and I – and someone's reached out to me and asked me to interview, like, there was like a climate psychologist. And I'm just like, nah, not doing it. Cause I just don't, cause it would just probably be a very hostile conversation. As hostile as I can be, you know, I'm the, I don't get very hostile. And maybe I should, maybe I should have that, but it's just, it's, it's an, it's a field. And I know you're well into it, Emily, but it's just a field that I'm trying to get my head around. So I guess that's one I've kind of avoided. Well, and Doug, you know, you don't have to be feeling climate trauma, but there are a lot of us in the climate space that do experience it. So I think even if you don't feel it, that doesn't mean that you can't have it as a topic of discussion. So I just encourage you to consider that. (laughs) I, I have a question, actually, Doug. So we're both from Florida, right? And I know you're from the middle, right? You're from Orlando area or Gainesville? I grew up in Sarasota. Sarasota. I... This is my take on climate trauma from my own personal point of view, right? I really feel sad about the fact that someday I'm going to need to take my kids to where I grew up by boat. You know, like that this is probably going to happen in my lifetime. That part of Miami is probably not going to be somewhere that people can live. And that I think is pretty a pretty traumatic thing, you know, like my childhood running around the alleyways of North Miami and picking fruit from trees and running around barefoot like that's gone. That way of life is gone. And I think that's something that we need to realize. Climate change is not something in the future. It's happening now. And, and so there are people to whom this has already happened all over the world. And I think it is really traumatic and it is something that needs to be talked about. And maybe America Daps isn't the place for it, but I do think I do think it has a it has a place in trying to help us adapt better. And I know podcasts like No Place Like Home or Climate One, they've covered it, I think, uh, quite a bit. Emily, and your point's well taken. It's something I consider, and I hope you're not holding it against me. I hope it doesn't compromise our friendship. Not at all. <laughs> okay. I've got more opinions on it, but I don't want to go there at the moment. We don't have enough time. Can I put a Doug, can I put a plug in for um the Good Grief Network is a really good resource um for folks that may be having faced climate trauma or going through eco anxiety. So check them out. You can shit give me a link, I'll put in the show notes. Cool. Let's talk about the year ahead. It twenty twenty. Very exciting. We're getting out of the <laughs> it's been a traumatic few years, but um we're going into twenty twenty. Lots of things are probably going to happen in the adaptation space. Climate change is not going away. It's only going to become a bigger area. And kind of related to what we just talked about, maybe get some input from you guys on areas that I should cover. And I got that climate grief and climate trauma tick. But what are some other areas that have been maybe a blind spot for me or maybe I've done, but we just need to keep revisiting it? And yeah, I'm going to go around here. Maybe Meredith would start start with you. Usually at the end of your episodes, you um, ask for someone who you'd like the person to um, to come on. So I, as well as having a suggestion for like a theme for the year, I also thought of someone. But anyway, in my suggestion for the year ahead is I think that there needs to be and it kind of fits in a little bit with what I was just saying. But I think that um, an episode talking about uh, climate refugees and how they're adapting to their new places or the people who are have decided to stay in places and adapt to places that you know let's say the government is 
maybe not in America, but there are some other places where the government has offered to to move people and they've said, no, thank you. We're not interested in moving. I like the idea of uh, exploring what what they're doing to adapt to new places if they've left or what they're doing to adapt their existing places if they're staying. Oh, man. Awesome suggestion. And hopefully maybe offline you can give me some recommendations. Sure. Anita, lay it on me. I think it'd be interesting to learn more about in 2020 this notion of weather and forecasting expanding and improving and moving into environmental prediction, uh, capturing some of the impacts of extreme weather events. And, uh, you know, this is a podcast about climate change. It's not about weather change, uh, but these things are related. And to the extent that um, some of this information and knowledge and expertise is going to move more into the private sector, you know, there's questions around the legitimacy of, of the predictions and the forecasting and who owns them and who has access to them, which I think will become more important as, as the climate continues to change. And then the other thing I think we'll see and I hope we'll see is, and you've had a lot of this, Doug, but more about the arts, music, literature, film, theater, photography, and climate change. And what does that mean uh, for the state of the world, but also how it can help uh, with adaptation? Yeah, I had those. I don't know if you listened to that episode. I had these two musicians on, and they wrote about some community up in Alaska, Kevalina, and I just thought it was the most interesting thing that they had no no connection to this. They had never been there, but they just decided to write some songs about the community. Yeah. Uh, was, I did hear that, and I really liked that. And you you dissed them a little bit with your critique about Simon and Garfunkel, but I thought they were really good. Holy cow! Simon oh. and Garfunkel are a classic group. How's that a diss? Well, you because you made some allusion to. The kind of music that you like, I don't know what you said, Led Zeppelin or some other pop. Motley Crue. Music, <laughs> Motley Crue, something that was way lesser than Simon and Garfunkel. I thought those guys were great, and that's that's kind of my point. Like, they've never been there, but this is now part of their psyche and therefore the art that they create, which is interesting, but also a little depressing that this is the state of the world. Boy, you just you got to watch what you say on this podcast. Emily, what do you got? Given that my number one story was focused on oceans, uh, I would love to hear from some folks that are working on adaptation projects to help conserve, protect, and restore the oceans, coral reefs, kelp forests, whatnot. I can connect you with Sylvia Earle. I got recently connected with a... Um, network uh, known as Blue Endeavors, and they do a lot related to um, helping youth become more engaged in marine um, biology and understanding what's happening in the, our, our oceans. But also would love to hear a podcast with some high schoolers or middle schoolers and for you to interview them to see what they are motivated by and what keeps them going and what they want to explore in the future as it relates to adaptation. I had a few teens on, but it's been a long time. So, yeah, that's a good idea. Those are all great. And, and Emily, have you ever heard of the Speak Up for Blue podcast? Have you heard of that podcast? No. It's all uh -uh. ocean conservation. I mean, it's he has a whole six podcasts. Um, it's Andrew Lewin. Highly recommend looking it up, Speak Up for Blue. And I bet he'd be interested in having you on as a guest, actually. But all ocean conservation. And he comes at it from every possible angle. So I would definitely recommend checking it out. One last question. And... You guys know what it is, and so we're going to go around the circle. And you sort of alluded to it already with your recommendations, but I want to just formally do it. 
Meredith, if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be? This is really hard, but given that this person has just put out a really interesting tool, I think it would be really interesting for him to be on. His name is Adam Markham. He works for the Union of Concerned Scientists, and he and some colleagues from James Cook University in Australia have created this Climate Vulnerability Index for World Heritage Sites, and this is um, environmental sites as well as uh, cultural heritage sites. And really what makes it really interesting and really special is that it takes the resilience of the community really, really seriously. So the community that depends on these um, places for their survival, and it looks at that as part of the vulnerability or strength of the of the whole World Heritage Site. But I think that this methodology can, you know, probably be used almost anywhere. And it's really looking at community resilience. And I, I really love it. So in general, Adam's a great guy, um, fascinating to talk to. And I really think that he would have a lot to say. Great suggestion. And I just imagine if when you and Marcia get together, you have a good old time talking shop. We do. She is the best. Emily, what do you got? Who would you recommend? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Sylvia Earle. Um, she was Time Magazine's 1998 Hero of the Planet, and she was the first female lead for the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. So she became the chief scientist, first female chief scientist. She's a great woman and incredible explorer of our planet. All right. And Anita. Well, I've been thinking about this, Doug, and I want to go out on a limb and recommend someone who I think is a good thinker and writer, and she may be a little bit hard to get, but I want to suggest Naomi Klein, because one of her books, The Shock Doctrine, is required reading for people on my team. I think she is a good um, advocate for climate-related issues. She's Canadian, so that's helping to expand your international reach, and I know you like Canadians, and we need more women voices in this field. And so I also want to congratulate you for having an all-female panel for this episode. Thank you, Doug, for that. Okay, guys, this has been a fantastic discussion. It's my end of the episode. It's so much fun, and I was I think this actually worked out relatively well. Emily, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here, and have a happy holiday. All right, you too. And Anita, thank you. Thank you, Doug. And I'm going to put in one last plug for you to do more international stories if you can. We've got to hear from voices all over the world, even if it's called America Adapts. Got it. And Meredith, it was a pleasure to have you on. We met for the very first time on this the podcast, and it worked out well. Anita was concerned about you and your voice or whatever, but it worked out <laughs> great. I'm throwing Anita under the bus here. But uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. It was such a great t um, time being on here and meeting you. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Anita, Emily, and Meredith for coming on and sharing their wisdom. I love doing these conversations, and I hope you guys take it upon yourself to learn more about what these three amazing adapters are up to. I love talking about the podcast, too, and I appreciate their feedback. If you have your own story on how you listen or how you share it with colleagues or friends or family, please email me. I'd love to hear it. Okay, some final housekeeping. So this is the end of the year episode, and it's been an incredible year. I've traveled quite a bit. I went to Wisconsin for the National Adaptation Forum, New York City for an episode on urban forestry. I was at MIT in Boston. I went to Florida twice, St. Augustine and Gainesville. It's been a fantastic year. I look forward to the year ahead and any new adventures that are going to come up. I want to thank all my supporters who have generously donated to the podcast. Thank you. 
This is a small-time operation, and your support is critical. This is a 501c3 organization, in case you're wondering. For those who are regular listeners and are looking for a charity to donate to, consider America Adapts and be part of telling all these adaptation stories. I want to do a personal shout-out to Brian Etling, a serious climate activist from the Northwest. Brian has been relentless in promoting the podcast. Every episode, there is always a tweet or a Facebook post, and he tags me, which allows me to reshare. Thanks, Brian. Really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And thanks to everyone else who has promoted the podcast over the past year. Word of mouth recommendations are the most important way for a podcast to grow. So if you and your organization are interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. As I mentioned earlier, I'm doing something new with streaming TV at Simpatico Studios. I'm sure many of you have questions about this. I had a lot of questions, but I'm fully into this and Check out the link in my show notes on how you learn more. Definitely sign up if you feel you have some adaptation work you want to share on a brand new streaming platform. I'm serious, folks. Get in early on this. Okay, don't forget to check out the Podcast in the Classroom initiative we're doing. I've heard from many professors using America Adapts in their classroom. Consider using it more formally with some discussion guides that have been developed for eight of my episodes. You can find those discussion guides on my website at americadapts.org. Yes, it's a personal mission of mine to get more professors and teachers using podcasts in the classroom. Your students will thank you for it, and it'll complement your coursework really well. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Folks, I speak a lot, and you're going to enjoy it. I've been doing some keynote presentations, and they're so much fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experience in adaptation. Listen, this is an emerging issue. It's not going anywhere, and so many sectors are kind of getting into that space. Love speaking to groups about this, so reach out. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join. People keep joining. We keep having these conversations. It's awesome. Sometimes we really get a nice thread going, so look for it there on Facebook. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi every week. It's new people reaching out, sharing their stories about listening to the podcast or having ideas for guests, or we just make connections. It's just great. And I... As a podcaster, you're never quite sure who all your listeners are or where they're at. And so when I hear from you, that's just a fantastic sort of affirmation of who's out there. I just heard recently from a listener, Ryan, who works for a bank. That was just great. You know, I I know I have such a diverse listening audience, but works for a major bank. And it was just fantastic for him to reach out and let me know he listens to the podcast. I love hearing from people even outside the adaptation space, knowing that you're getting some value out of it. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.